All right, welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again for this week, and I'm joined by uh, Mr. Mark Cantrell this week. How you doing, Mark? Good. Thank you very much, David. Good, good. Today is April the 30th, 2015. So uh, what's going on in the world of pool this week, Mark? You know, this one has been uh, an announcement by uh, Chimex that they're going to be sponsoring Darren Appleton <laughs> uh, so that uh, they're going to make sure he has a uh, travel alarm clock with it at all times. <laughs> but other, other than that, um, I guess uh, Sky Wooded just uh, came off another win. Yeah, he uh, did. Yeah, he did. It keeps being Shane, and Shane's supposed to be the best player in the country right now. I know. That's looking at the crazy. records, he didn't have much luck against him. No, he's uh, he's gotten he's Sky has handed out a couple of beatdowns to Shane this year, so that's a that's an interesting turn of events. We're talking about the uh, the event up in uh, Beloit at the Carom Room that just went down this past week. Um, Skyler Woodward. He busted out. He double dipped Shane, so that's uh, beating him twice. That's uh, yow. That's gotta hurt a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know we had him on the show. He seems he seems young. He seems unassuming, and uh, you know, I it's a compliment, I guess, in a way. He, look, he looks young. He might not think much of it now, but when he gets to my age, I wish he looked younger. <laughs> um, he's gonna. He's going to uh, do some special things, I think. Because yeah. uh, be, being Shane, at uh, his age, uh, again, he looks unassuming because of, because, of, because of his age and he does look young. Right. He looks like you're playing, he looks like you're playing a kid. Yeah. And he's a, he's a little bit of a monster because he's beaten a lot of people. Big names. Not just Shane. Other big names, too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He's busted out. Bustamente. Uh, he beat Jesse Bowman. Corey Duell. Uh, Larry Neville, Justin Bergman, uh, Daryl, Darren Appleton, even so, you know, yo, that's, um, I think, yeah, he's, he's, he, matter of fact, I guess I go ahead and tell the listeners that, uh, we got an interview with him for this week. Uh, Ricky Bryant talked to him, uh, right after the match. So, uh, stick around a little bit later on the show and we're going to be, uh, talking with, uh, Skyler about that. And, uh, while I'm thinking about it. I also wanted to let you know that uh, coming up this next week, uh, May the 4th, uh, will be the announcement of the junior team for the Moscone Cup, or the, excuse me, the Atlantic Challenge Cup, which is the Moscone Cup for the juniors. The team will be announced um, this coming week on the 4th. And speaking of the 4th, um, there, was, there is a new television program about pool players called The Hustlers. And it was supposed to have aired for the first time on the 4th, but we're now getting word that uh, that premiere has been bumped back to about the, I want to say the 21st or 22nd of May. So just check your uh, schedules and your your local listings for that and so you won't miss it. Um, but this week, we're going to start off uh, a two-part series uh, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about something, uh, you know, 
in the nature of promoting pool, what it takes exactly to run a tournament. How do you run a tournament? What are the basic steps that you have to take? So this week, we're going to be addressing some of the smaller events. And then uh, next week, we're going to get back with CSI. And uh, hopefully, Alan Hopkins will be available. And uh, we'll be talking to them about doing some of the bigger events. But for today, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Mr. Jay Helfert. And um, geez, who else? Um, Mike Howerton is going to be talking to his tournament director out there in, uh, in Arizona, too. So uh, stick around for that, and uh, we're going to hand you over to the one-minute pool instructor. So we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Scott Lee. And this is Randy G. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. And Randy, let's uh, continue on with our discussion from last week about the uh, involvement of uh, pool in China. And there's actually been some new developments, haven't there? Yeah, pretty exciting. Um, a completely different group away from the government and Henry Chen, although they certainly have to be associated with the government to do anything in China. But um, I think they're called the Chinese Billiard Alliance. Mm -hmm. They're trying to bring 200 students over this year for a month-long pool lessons. Wow. Oh, I know. So, uh, Scott, you and I are meeting with them. We are. And, and uh, we've got it all pretty well laid out. But uh, we're certainly, Scott, we're certainly not going to be handle this on our own. No. How do you think we should approach this? Well, I, I think that uh, we have s uh, several instructors around the country oh, that yeah. help good us ones. do this. Real very good ones. Very good ones. And uh, we'll break these... Uh, people up into groups of five, and one instructor will take a group of five students for a month. For a month, where they live, so they don't have to uh, travel somewhere else. And we'll all be teaching them SPF. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, some of the uh, problems that arise there is housing. Yep. Translation. Yep. Uh, booking. Yep. I mean, it's uh, this is not something you just do. This is something <laughs> that takes time, planning. So uh, I've well, already got the uh, international uh, um, translators uh, people uh, seeing how many uh, Chinese to American translators we can get in certain locations. But uh, uh, they, they claim that most of these people may speak a little English, but you know, our teaching is only as good as the word they receive. That's for so true. So, true. so we, we need a great, great interpreter in each location. Well, and it may, it may very well turn out that we have to actually train the interpreter a little bit in, in, pool. in, in right. pool so right. that they know well, what they're talking about. So, so that meeting is coming up this week, Scott, and yeah. I'm excited. Uh, they're in from China here into Dallas, and uh, I guess we're going to wine and dine them. Yes, we are. So. I think this is a, a really great opportunity for uh, the, the people in China that are interested in coming over here. And I, I don't find it surprising that they want to come here. Well, and once again, if you do your research, there's only a couple of instructors who can handle this type of project. And uh, thank God you and I are involved in this. Mm -hmm. and, and then we've got our eight or nine instructor friends who right. are just as... as capable of doing this. It's just whether or not an instructor has a month free. You have to be, you, you have to be capable of basically 
letting go of everything else and put yeah. all your time. Yeah, this is five days a week for yeah. four, four weeks. So. Yeah, a tense um, program. But we're going to do it. And, and for our listening audience, uh, maybe next time we'll we'll fill you in on how this works out. But I'm excited about <laughs> I uh, am too. And the only Chinese word I know is ni chao. <laughs> and it means hello. Or it also means goodbye. There you go. Kind of like uh, 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 Aloha. Yeah. yeah, same kind of a thing. So we're, we're meeting with them, and, and then uh, we'll follow up with everybody uh, on uh, American Broadcast Radio, and, and we'll keep you informed. But it's an exciting thing, and not everybody's pool player, Scott. Yeah. They're all coming over into, into four different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, never played pool, beginner pool, advanced pool, and, and professional pool players. Instructor candidates. Oh, yeah. So we've got our hands full here. But you know something? Uh, I can see retirement in a couple of years. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's certainly a, a, a very interesting perspective on trying to help spread the word of becoming a pool player around the world, and I'm glad that we can be involved in it. I'm, well, I'm honored. Well, and who's to say China is just the first step? Sure. Uh, I mean, our PBIA instructor program is bar none the best I've ever seen. So, yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is. I can see why they come to us. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's uh, the one-minute pool instructor for today. Uh, I'm Scott Lee. And I'm Randy G. And we'll see you next week on American Billiard Radio. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here talking with uh, Mr. Mark Cantrell, who's been around the block a couple of times when, when it comes to putting events together. So, um, Mark, what are the... If you're going to put together a, a, a smallish to medium-sized event, um, what are some of the first things that should go through your head? Well, bear, bear in mind, I don't, I've never done anything as big as yeah, Elford's done in the past or uh, sure. um, CSI. You know, I've done some uh, challenge matches, pay-per-view challenge right. matches, and obviously the tours. Right. Uh, but as far as an event, where, um, to do a, a challenge match, you've got to have a, a, a concept, and you've got to have, you know, I did the Red, White, and Blue Blood, I did the Bad Blood, I did uh, the Decider, um, mm-hmm. I did uh, Scott Frost and Efren Reyes, One Pocket. You know, I think you've got to find is there an interest, and where can you find the money? Now, we're going to be hearing from Jay a little bit later on, and he does things different, but I, I think he does he does a different type of event as well. Right. Uh, but I always try and find where there's an interest, and and then I run the idea or to a potential sponsor, pool owner. If I could do this, how can we find the money to do it? How much are you willing to play? Sure. And then talk to some other potential sponsors. How much? If, if I can make this happen, how much are you willing to play? Right. Until I get to the point where I know the players are going to get paid at least, and the production costs and expenses and things like that, that they're going to get all get paid. I'm the last one to get paid, sure. and I think that's the, the you know the way to do it. Um, unless you can find out or gather enough money to know the worst-case scenario, if nobody shows up, if the pay-per-view goes down, that you have something for your time, 
you know, because I, you know, I do, I, I do it because I love the game, but it, you know, it takes a, a fair amount of time to put them together. Right. So I just like to get the, the, the money squared away. And then let's say it's, um, Scott Frost and Efren Reyes, who I'm trying to pitch, then I speak to them. Mm-hmm. And say, when, do you, are you interested in doing this? Right. Yes. No. You know, and if they say no, I've got to come with another plan. But a lot of times it's yes, depending on the time. Mm-hmm. So then we just kind of set the time and uh, you know start the promoting of it. And that's the you know that's why you can obviously speak to the the whoever's going to stream it uh, or do pay per view for it. Mm-hmm. Make sure that deal's in, in place. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, you see. Right. And, uh, with, well, uh, let me, just, let me hold man. you up for a second. Let me hold you up for just a second. It, let's, let's, uh, I don't want to confuse anybody. So I, I want to, I'm, I'm trying to lay this out in the simplest terms as possible. And so back to the, the beginning paragraph in, in your mind, whether it's a small tournament or a, a challenge match, what have you, you're on your checklist. The first thing to do is to figure out how and who it's going to get paid for, right? Yes. And that obviously, and that if it's a challenge match, obviously you're talking about the players that are being invited to come play. And if it's a tournament, then obviously we're talking about the payouts for the different people that are obviously playing in it. So you've got to secure the yeah, funding. Yeah, the added money for a tournament. Right. Yeah, it's going to be the added money. Exactly. You need to make sure uh, you you can't control uh, too much. Uh, you'd like to think you could, but I don't think you can control too much how many people are going to enter the tournament. How, you know, with with a challenge match, you know, uh, people get coming to get a free roll. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of times it's really just uh, the players who you want you can get as long as you know what your price point is. You know what's what makes it worth it for them sure. to to come out. Uh, once you've got that figured out, it's just a matter of securing the dates. But yeah, that that's the most important thing. I I, I know there's people in the past and present who've done it a different way, and they go they put the event together and then hope that the gate is good, right and Hope that the pay-per-view sells, and hope that the merchandise sells, and hope they can get the sponsors, right, and things right. like that. And that, and if all that works out, then they've got the money to pay. Right. But if they, I like to make sure that the money's there first <laughs> uh, before anything else. And once it's there, I know I, I can, I know the players' expenses and that kind of thing are going to be paid, right. and the prize right. fund or an appearance fee. Is going to be taken care of, and then I hope, in some cases, that the gate's good and that the pay per view is good and the merchandise sells and the raffle goes well, so that I can make some money. But worst thing that can happen is I walk away with empty pockets and say I just wasted my time, but everybody else got paid. Uh, everybody having a good show, and that's what most down to. Right, right, right. Well, so the I think that that you you have brought two points together that cross over when it, when you're taking that first step and that is when you're coming up with the fundage it, it's going to come from somewhere whether it be the players or from the venue or from a sponsor what have you in some cases if it's a tournament event then 
the money will, to a certain extent, be coming from the entry fees. So that can be part of the determining factor, obviously, as far as uh, the payouts and the budget. But you don't want to do it like, say, Berman style, where, like you just mentioned, and hope that you generate the money during the event to pay off things when you should have been worried about it from the beginning, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I just, I would not be able to bring myself to uh, announce a tournament without knowing that the money was there. Right, right. You know, even with that, even with that, I've had my nervous times when things can go wrong. When you go, uh, all right, uh, Dave Bond, American Billiard Radio, uh, in for 2000, sponsorship, and then I get there and I can't find Dave Bond. Dave Bond isn't answering the phone. Right, right. Why did Dave Bond change his mind? That's true. Why that can happen. Yeah, um, it has happened. <laughs> or, you can, or you can, you know, I, you know, I, I try to work things as best I can uh, and get the money so I know it's there. I have the money. Right. But sometimes you just kind of got to go there to, to do it. They, they, uh, Esther Reyes and Scott Frost deal. That I did. No, was it that one? No, i tell you what it was. It was Rodney Morris playing Tony Crosby. Aaron Phoenix uh, came up with the idea, and I've spoken to him, and um, everybody was in, and I spoke to some of the local businessmen, and they were all in for some money, and the pool room was in for some money, and I said, okay, everything's all's good, right? And it was a great night, a great match, a full house, and everything else. But the, at that point, the sponsors were worried about me yeah, yeah. showing up because, <laughs> you know, they they didn't know me from Adam. Um, right. And, well, they didn't see me around, but, you know, I'm saying, hey, I need $1,000. I need 1000 from you, 500 from you, yada, yada. And after it was all done, uh, I was outside and... A couple of the guys who were the major sponsors that kind of patted me on the back said, good job. We were a little bit nervous as to whether this was all going to be bullshit or not. And you, <laughs> you were even going to show up. Uh, and we were going to ever see you again once you got our money. Yeah, right. And that's the, way, and that's the way I feel when, you know, if the pool room says, yeah, yeah, come, come and do it here. And they get a full house and then they don't, oh, well, we don't actually have the money. Oh, yeah. Which... Happened. Happened yeah. More on more on tours uh, than anything else. You know, exhibition tours and things like that. Where the pool room owner said, uh, "You know, it's fifteen hundred. Uh, will five hundred work?" You know, five hundred work. Yeah, that also brings up um, an, another good point about the handling of the money, um, as we've learned about in the past. It's not unheard of for a tournament director to take a decent sum of cash and leave it unattended and have the money just straight up walk out of the room. So, you know, that, and I know that's common sense stuff that people probably wouldn't normally think of, but obviously, you know, when you've got five grand in your pocket, 
it's a lot safer than it is, you know, laying around somewhere. So don't be don't be stupid and let money go unattended or let the wrong people hold on to it or, you know, that that sort of thing. That's that's a that's a bad idea, too. So I won't dwell on that too long. Uh, we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to get any skeletons out of the closet there. But uh, all right. So you got let's say you got your um, you got your uh, tournament uh, event tournament or event. You've decided to do it. Um, you've got some money from your venue. You've got some money from a sponsor. You've got a decent size, and 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 in my case, I'm talking about a decent sized field of players that you're going to open it up to. So that's going to give you some uh, some prize fundage, uh, at least backup for your prize fundage. Beyond the money, and what do we want? What do we want to do next? The venue, the game. Well, yeah. You, you know, the thing is, you, you've always got to be looking for revenue sources, and, and maybe that's uh, some people would say that's not the right way that you should be doing it because you love the sports and things like that. But you know, it takes two months uh, or more of your life uh, to, to put something like this together, and you know, you you always got to be looking for uh, how you can monetize. The anything else, right? So you got the paper, you got the paper view. So you got to call. You got pay per view uh, options, guys. Right, you've got and, merchandise options, t-shirts and uh, yeah, signed balls, and to. yeah, sure, stuff like that. In other words, what you're saying is, uh, don't limit yourself to just gate or uh, you know entry fees. There's obviously lots of other ways that the money can be produced. Um, you may. Well, what is the money produced? You see, that's the thing. It's the money pr- produced that you have said is going to be there, mm-hmm. and it's going to pay everything. From a promoter standpoint, you you got to focus on making it the, the. You know, and it's not easy. As good a quality of a production as you possibly can. Sure. And we, in our day and age of the, I say the streaming. You can't always count on the internet or bandwidth not going down or a technical issue or a problem right, now where, right. you know, you've got, uh, you know, you've got people who pay and they're not able to watch because it keeps dropping or it's choppy or whatever it is. So that money's, uh, money's kind of gone. But, yeah, uh, so for a, for a tournament or, or for a challenge match, as long as the money's there, and the promoter wants to make some money, and there's other ways to, to go about making that additional money. And it might be getting a sponsor uh, for a Q raffle, getting banners around the, you know, additional sponsors going around the edge of the arena area for the um, TV table. Right. Uh, but you, you've also got, um, you know, the, then it's the, there's the promotion of it to make sure that people know it's going on. Yeah, that's true. And it's got to be handled. I'm not a graphic designer, so you got to figure out. I've got to get, um, for whichever event, I've got to get the players' faces on there. I've got to get the date. I've got to get some kind of flyer that can go out on Facebook, sure, on sure. the internet, email list, uh, up on AZ Billions, uh, and, and promote the heck out of it and get as much information as, as you can out there. Right. And if there's any way to build it up, then, you know, you got to do what you can to, to build it up and get more up. If it's uh, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, uh, I mean, it's all over the place. Sure. Uh, for different types of promotion for it. Right. Um, 
so yeah, that, th- those are all uh, things that have to be done. And if, if on on a limited budget that we have, and trying to turn a profit, it's not always that easy to get the quality product that you want. I think it costs Metro response, I think, with um, the Moscone Cult, their production, granted, it's going all over the world live, but it, I think production alone is like 800000 Right, yeah. That's for, a, what, for what they do. It's a big deal. Whether in a pool room or a, a Elks Lodge or an Eagles Lodge or something like that, that we don't have those opportunities mm-hmm. uh, on, on the cash flow. So who makes where do you get your uh, T-shirts from? you got to get uh, your tour shirts, your memorabilia at the best price you can get. That's got to be worked out as well. Right. Where can you get the best price on cue balls to sell for, you know, players to sign and sell? Uh, uh, a cue sponsor to raffle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do you charge at the gate? What's right. a reasonable amount? You know, right. it's a three-day event. Is it $15 a day and $60 for the whole event? The VIPCs. How many VIPCs can you actually have where people have a guaranteed seat and are willing to pay a premium to be able to sit down right. and watch right. in a limited amount of space? Uh, yeah, no, this uh, is true. What, there's so many things, and they can all go wrong. What if, what if I, I, here's another one, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back to that, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Efron and Scott Frost. One pocket, uh, biggest shock of my life, because uh, my, in my opinion, One Pocket was the most boring game in the world. Uh, <laughs> that before, that's before I'd actually played it. <laughs> And I've been told, yeah, one pocket match with Efron and Scott, it'll do well. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I walked into the pool room the day before the event to do some things. And they had bleachers set up. And uh, I said, oh, what are you doing? There's going to be 10 people show up. It's not this is one pocket. <laughs> Nobody's coming to see that. And there's, no, we've been answering the phone all day. We've got people flying in from the East Coast to watch this. They've been trying to buy tickets from us here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How much do you want to sell them for? I said, well, what we won't be charging general admission. Uh, general admission was, uh, I can't remember, I think it was like 25 bucks, or $15, general admission. And they said, what about VIP things? I said, well, 35 They said, no, no, do 65 I think that's the numbers. Do 65 I'm like, no way I'm doing 65. Nobody's going to buy it at 65. I said, but hey, all right, come on, give it a try. My problem, my thought was, here's another part that can go wrong. What if I've got 40 VIP seats and only 10 fell because they're too expensive? Now I've got a tournament with uh, an event with half-empty VIP seats. Nobody said that. So now people are going to go, well, can I sit that? Well, yeah, I guess you can. You know, we want to look busy, you know, we want it to look good and have an atmosphere, but now what happens <laughs> to the people who bought tickets for 60? So now you got to refund them, or do I lower the price of the tickets? There's so many things there. Anyway, the long story short, they, uh, I called in to say, how's those uh, VIP seats? And they said, oh yeah, we sold out of those already. It was like six hours. Wow. 
we sold out all the VIP seats. I can't, I can't believe it. Like, you got the money? Like, <laughs> well, you know, we're going to pay for it when they get here. Some gave us money already. They were in here. So, well. I guess you learned something on that day about one pocket, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you, you learn every time you do something, you, you learn and you learn about what what you, you learn. Obviously, you learn what you don't know. But yeah. that's just um, so it's just telling you the things that are moving parts. This is for a small event. Mm. We start talking about you know the U.S. Open, and now Ben has been doing it long enough. It's it should be clockwork for him, but just on a small event whether it be the pay-per-view, the flyers, who does the flyers, who pays for the flyers to be created, uh, where do you get the sponsors from, who's willing to sponsor it, oh, right. is it the right, right location, right. is anything else going on that weekend that we should know about? Well, There's I so think, things that right, go wrong. that's exactly, I think, the point right there is that a lot of people, well, and let me back up, I think uh, your, your rambling has made a point here, Mark, and that is... That for as simple as it may seem to put together a small little event like a 16-man money match or a challenge match or even a small tournament for the bangers, if you want to do it right, it's a whole. there's a whole lot more that goes into it than what it might seem like at first as far as, okay, I'm going to uh, – the local pool room has agreed to do it. You announce a 64-man field, you collect their entry fees, and you pay out. You can do it like that, but that's just hardly a way to throw to hardly a good way to throw together a good event. Like you said, you want to make it as successful as possible for everybody involved, the players specifically. And if it's going to be a fan attraction, then obviously you want to you know the fans to have it as good of a time and get as much for their money as they possibly can. So that's why you said about the moving parts, you know, um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you're looking for, like you said, posters and flyers, T-shirts or memorabilia or tickets or pay-per-views, the Internet, reliability, different stuff that is completely out of your control once you've handed it over to somebody. And in some cases, you know, maybe your T-shirt vendor didn't come through. It's not the end of the world. But... If, let's say, you know, like you said, uh, what if um, the table te- uh, the table uh, mechanic didn't show up the day before to change out the cloth and all of a sudden your tables are in horrible condition and the whole event's supposed to be going on? What do you do? You ha- you plan for backups is what you do. You plan and you plan and you plan and, and, you, plan and you plan some more. Look, look at this one. Imagine you've got... Um I was just going to say, let's say, uh, CSI's productions, uh, the Reno uh, Bar Table, uh, U.S. Bar Table Championship, or uh, the U.S. Open with Barry. For, that's another example. Mm-hmm. Bad Boys Billiard Productions, they do a great job. And, they, you know, I don't know if they do the U.S. Open or not, but they're a big part of tournaments, local, regional, uh, league events all over the country. And they have all these diamond tables, and they head to wherever it is. There's one, there's a BTA event in Harker Heights, Texas, which is, boy, that's a town and a half. There's like, it's a one-mile-long town with a convention center, 
and <laughs> there's 50 bars, 50 tattoo parlors, and uh, uh, 50 strip clubs, and a grocery store and a gas store. <laughs> it's a, the place is a trip. But on, let's say they're on the way there with, for this event that's all being promoted and planned, and their truck breaks down. Right. On the way there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Engine totally blows. Yeah. You can't get an engine for four days. It's got to be shipped in from Michigan or wherever. Exactly. And like now, you said, what are you going to do? Or even even worse than that, you know, what if your 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 table supplier has failed or is going to be late, and all of a sudden you find yourself having to um, give out refunds for all the entry fees, but you've already spent the entry fees on t-shirts and <laughs> t-shirts and balls, you know, you gotta, well, you gotta on, think it through. On, forget about yourself for a second. Yeah. And how much money you're losing. How about the 500, 600 people that came to the BCA regional event from a different part of the state and we've got hotel rooms. Yeah, twice. exactly. Exactly. Use gas money, took days off work. And now there's no tournament for them. How do should they be reimbursed? It's a good question. See, that's yeah, things see, that, and that, that could not just ruin your tournament. It can ruin people's experience. It can, I say, it can ruin their lives. But you know that if I spend fifteen hundred bucks to go to a tournament and find out the tables want that, yeah, it's not going to happen. I'd be pissed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And who wouldn't be, you know? So, uh, you know, and uh, before we go, I'm going to I'm going to st- stop boring our audience to death here and let them talk to somebody a little more interesting than you or I. Um I will, I will say that it, there's there's another point that underlies everything that we're we're saying here as far as it's more complicated than what it might seem. It's also more risky than what it might seem you know you could easily go broke trying to throw together a decent event like that and have something fail on you so it's uh to that is to the credit of the promoters the ones that put out that money and take the risk and have the potentially any one of these things go wrong for it even on the smallest of tournaments if something goes wrong you know, like the at the Caram Room in, in, in Wisconsin, what if they had a, a a power outage on that block? A tree fell over and took out, you know, a, a mile of power lines, and there was simply nothing they could do. Are you going to hold a tournament by candlelight and, and uh, gas lamps? Yeah, probably not. So there is always some risk involved in putting even together s- small events, small-ish events. So... My advice to yeah, I, I think, is to, oh, sorry, is to no, it's all right. My advice is just to think it through. Like I said, plan to plan and plan and plan some more because you never really know. And what also can, give those tournament, those promoters, no matter what the event is, I, I understand things can go wrong. Give them a small break. Right. A small break because I tell you, if they put on of those wonderful events, they're going to get a handful of people. Pat him on the back, shake your hand, and say thank you. Yeah, if, if you even one right. Tiny little, one tiny little thing goes wrong, everybody's going to be on them. Yeah, you'll never hear the end of it, man. The fast <laughs> to tell you where you fucked up. Yep. Uh, you know, so 
you know, if, if something small goes down, you know, give, give, give the promoter the benefit of the doubt is my... Right, right, because like I said, it may or may not be his fault. Um, so anyway, yeah, let's just move along, and um, we'll be hearing from Jay and Mike here in just a minute. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you again next week uh, with our second half of the program when we talk about some bigger events, some big events. Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. I'm Mike Howerton from AZ Billiards. Our topic this week is a little different. We're talking about pool tournaments and what makes for a successful pool tournament. Uh, While I've been involved in a number of pool tournaments and and covered quite a few, uh, I don't really consider myself an expert on this subject. On the other hand, with the Diamond Pool Tour, my partner in crime, Chuck Peril, I do consider him a little bit more of an expert when it comes to pool tournaments and, and running them. So we are joined this week by the Diamond Pool Tours Tournament Director, Chuck Peril. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm wonderful. We've got a tournament starting tomorrow. We'll be heading out for uh, our, our tour stop in Tucson. Yeah, it looks to be a fun event. It'll be our first one outside of uh, Phoenix. We'll, it's, it'll be interesting to see how many people uh, forego watching Manny Pacquiao beat the crap out of Floyd Mayweather and, and come out to play in the tournament. Oh, I think there's room for both. <laughs> I hope so. So we're talking this week about pool tournaments and what makes for a successful pool tournament from the side of the tournament director. Uh, tell me what you do in order to help make a tournament run smoothly and successfully. So we need to make sure that the, that venue actually has room for the players before you even hold the tournament. Once you've actually decided you have a room that's actually appropriate, then preparation is the biggest thing, making sure you have all the, all the equipment that you need so that you're not scrambling at the last minute. Make sure you're organized. On the day of the event, we always announce sign-ups a couple hours ahead of time before the tournament starts so that players have the ability to come in and re- re- relaxedly sign up so they're not standing in line. Once we get all the players signed up before the tournament starts, we make sure we hold a player meeting, make sure everybody has all their expectations set appropriately. Uh, we talk about all the rules before the tournament starts. Another important thing is that as a director, I don't feel like I should be playing in the tournament. I'm there to work the tournament, pay 100% attention to the tournament. I'm not there to socialize. So I'm always there paying 100% attention. You know, that's that's a, a difficult thing, you know, because a lot of times when we're out at a tournament, and, and I don't say this as AZ Billiards covering a tournament myself, I say it as being involved with the tour. You know, a lot of times when you and I are out running these tournaments, there's people there that we might only see once a month, and, and it's difficult to not allow it to become something where we're socializing. You know, it seems like it's it's for the betterment of the tournament itself if you can be there till the end 
when the play is done for the night, I mean, most of the players hang out afterwards anyway. You know, that seems to be the time for socializing. Have a beer, enjoy yourself, relax a little bit. It's been a long day of running a tournament. Uh, is that what you see, or, you know, by the time the whole thing's over, are you just ready to get out of there, either to be done with the event or to get some rest for the next day? Well, I guess it really depends on how the tournament's running. I mean, of course, if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, everybody wants to go home, and you need to have some rest for the next day. But if you are running a successful event and you're setting expectations of which players can come back the next day and which players are not coming back the next day, then you have players that are actually done with the tournament by 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, even though you're running until 1 or 2. As you weed down and you only have a few tables left, you actually can take the time to congratulate people on how they did and socialize and say hello, you know, make sure you make, treat everybody personally. But honestly, it depends on how the tournament's running. I'm going to ask this question just because it's something that has come up with you and I. Um, inevitably, you're going to have people unhappy about something going on in the tournament. They're not happy about the format. They're not happy about a, a call on a shot. They're not happy about having to wait too long. They're not happy about not having a long enough break in between matches. You know, you're, it goes back to the, you know, you're never going to make everybody happy sort of thing. How do you handle those people who feel that their, their side of things is not being heard and they are not pleased with something going on in that tournament well a lot of times what i will do in those situations is i'll try to take them aside for a moment and explain my reasoning behind it if i have a couple of minutes to do that it's easy to just say no we're not going to do it this is the way it is but showing the person some respect and explaining what's happening in the background because a lot of players are playing a lot of tournaments but they really don't know what goes into running one so if you explain to them the reason you're doing things and then you be consistent so that it's not the same person that's having the problem all the time or that, you know, they see that you're being consistent with other people. Uh, you know, when you make a bad call, there's inevitably going to be a bad call, but being consistent and standing your ground saying, you know what, it might have been a bad call, but that's the call that I made. You both agreed to you know, take my opinion on the call. Uh, it's just being consistent and being fair. And that, that goes back to, again, not running, you know, not playing in a tournament you're running in. Uh, so that you don't have, you know, the appearance of favoritism in any way. Uh, that's always hard as well when you have friends that are in the tournament and people think that there may be some favoritism towards the friends and you just have to be very ultra-conscious that, you know, you're not showing that, that favoritism. But I think really just showing that every player respect and explaining what may be going on in the background helps a lot in de-escalating those types of situations. And, you know, I'd like to take your comment about uh, tournament staff not playing in the event to the next level. Is there a difference, really, between someone who's running the tournament playing in it and someone who's running the tournament uh, buying players who are in the tournament in the Calcutta or in side pots or something like that? Well, this is how I feel about that, and I'm not saying anybody's wrong or anybody's right. My opinion is there's being honest and there's being fair, and there's the appearance of being honest and being fair. I don't want to set myself up for a situation where I'll have to make a call that'll affect a match two matches away. 
and I'll explain that. What it means is if I make a call on a player that I happen to have bought in the Calcutta as a tournament director, or if I'm playing in it and I make a call on a player and that puts that player either goes forward or puts a player out, that's somebody that I potentially can benefit from two matches later if I wind up playing that person or if I have somebody in the Calcutta, that person goes that much farther. So again, it's just something that I choose not to do so that there's no question in anybody's mind, besides my own, but there's no question in anybody's mind that I am being, you know, showing any kind of favoritism. I'm trying to be fair, and I don't think it's, in my opinion, right for anybody who's running a tournament to purchase players or to play in the tournament. Uh, there is a debate amongst some tournament directors between paper brackets and online brackets. What's your opinion? I actually like both. The online brackets are are good so that you can keep your your viewing public informed. It allows your players to look at their phones. They can see who they're going to be playing next. It actually stops a little bit of the congestion at the tournament desk when people keep coming up. I think it's necessary to have paper brackets because you never know what's going to happen with a computer. You're saving your information. Uh, it doesn't save properly. The site goes down. Something happens inevitably that you no longer know who's playing who. You have a backup for each one, an online bracket. You also have one that's on paper. You can always recreate it. Chances of both of them going down at the same time is very slim. So I like both. The paper brackets also allow, if you put it away from your tournament desk, players to actually see where they're playing without, again, keeping congestion at the front. No, that makes sense. And, and we oftentimes have problems with, with players congregating at the desk, wanting to look at the brackets. You know, it's, it's a constant, um, you know, the, the most frequently asked question is, when do I play next? You know, do I have right. time? Do I not have time? You know, half of them want to be, you know, they want to wait 30, 40 minutes so they can get food. The other half, you know, they just got done winning a match. They want to play again right away. It's, it's difficult. Um, this is kind of an all-encompassing thing that, that would go, that would get into filling a tournament as well as running a successful tournament. And, and I, I am going to throw my opinion out there a little bit. Um, I really think, especially in where what we do out here, you need to know your audience and you need to know what it is that draws certain players to an event. And, and to give you an example is our tour you know, we do things a little different. We separate the brackets between A players and B players, but the logic behind that is we have so many B players out here, you can't just run a tournament for the top players. Um, you would end up with the same four or five guys beating the same field of 20 or 24 guys every month, and that gets old. What, what we've done is you know we've taken advantage of the rating system that we have here in town and we've been able to separate the players into these two different brackets and we reward the winners of each bracket well now other states may not be able to do that but i think it's important to know your audience figure out what will draw that audience to the event and i also think it's important to to look out for everybody, make sure that everybody is taken care of. You know, tournament players need to remember that there's a room owner who's adding money to this tournament, and 
you know, you need to take care of that room owner. If, if it's a question of, well, it's an extra $2 for me to have dinner here at the pool room, I could just go to McDonald's instead, spend the extra $2, help the room owner out. Otherwise, the room goes away, and then you don't have tournaments. Yeah, I agree 100%. You should always support the room owners that are willing to put money out there, uh, as well as the sponsors that actually help sponsor the event. You know, you have to you have to think of those as well. The players have to think of those. You know, we have different sponsors that are willing to put their, you know, put their time and money and effort into giving the players a good tour. So we need to support those sponsors as well, in the same way. Um, streaming at tournaments. What's your opinion? I think streaming at tournaments is a good thing. It actually helps get more players interested you might get more players that play in the next event uh it also is good for quite honestly the streaming is for the players to watch but it's for the sponsors as well to make sure that they get something back for helping the players so it's important to have the streaming because everybody wants to see a good match but at the same time it it, it helps it helps promote the room, it helps promote the events, and it helps promote the sponsors that are willing to put the money in because everybody likes the money added to a tournament, and we're not going to have that if we don't have you know, people that are willing to add money to it. One other important thing uh, in order to run a successful tournament is to make sure that you've got everything done beforehand that you need to do, like going to work and, and that sort of thing, which I know you're going to be doing here in just a couple minutes. You like the way I sagged there? <laughs> yes, that was awesome. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I know you're off to work, and I know that we've got a tournament to run this weekend. I appreciate you taking a couple minutes for us, and have a screaming day. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, everybody. That's all we've got this week. Um, those are our opinions on how to run a successful tournament. Um, biggest thing to do, I really think, is just to get out there and do it. I mean, if, if you've got an idea, if, if you want to do something to help the pool world, then... I say get out there and do it. If it if it crashes and burns, well, then you learn something and you move on, and, and hopefully it doesn't crash and burn and and it becomes something successful. Uh, you know, we made some changes to the, the tour format out here, and so far it's going well, and if it turns out that down the road it stops going so well, then we'll make adjustments as it goes. All right, everybody, that's all I got this week. Uh, I'm Mike Howerton with AZ Billiards. Thanks for listening. Bye. to American Billion Radio. This is the Legends and Champions Report, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. I'm your host, Mark Cantrell. And uh, as you've all obviously gathered by now, we are doing this week's show. The theme is promoters and tournament directors, the best that we've got in the country at the moment, to give, just give us some insight. Um, running a tournament or an event is not easy. There are so many things that can go wrong with it. And, you know, the people who we're going to have, you know, throughout the, the show, 
are going to be the the people who probably know the ins and outs better than anybody else. And so I have on the line with me my old buddy and uh, legendary promoter, stakeholder, tournament director, Tupé J, Mr. J. Helford. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good, Mark. Thank you. Um, I know you're, you're going on a trip to tomorrow morning. Go see that uh, little daughter of yours in the Philippines. Yes, I am. I'll be gone for three weeks. Wow. And how old is she now? She'll be six in June. Wow. Time flies. I distinctly remember uh, the time uh, around the time when she was born. Yeah. So, uh, time goes by. Um, so let's ask you, you've got all the experience in the world. You've been a promoter and tournament director for God knows how many years. What a long you, time, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> longer than you want to admit. Um, how many years have you been doing it? Over 30 now. Over 30 years. And I forgot yeah. to add, you know, you're uh, also a uh, author of uh, Pool Wars and uh, now the new one, Pool Wars 2. That's, uh, no, it's called, uh, the new one's more, called More Pool more, Wars. More pool, no, more Pool Wars. I have Let me put a, I'll put a quick plug in since you yeah. brought it up. Yeah. If you want a copy of more Pool Wars, just go to jhelford.com. There you go. Um, so w- when you uh, go to promote or uh, be a tournament director, what is the first thing that you need before you start, before the tournament starts? What do you think you have to have in place for anybody who would want to do it? Well, a it, there's two different hats you're talking about. One is a promoter of an event. The other one's the tournament director. If I'm a promoter of an event, the first thing I need is I need a location and a date. That's where you, if you don't have a location and you don't have a good date, you can't do an event. Right. After you get the location and the date, then you raise the money you need. So you do it that way, huh? See, because I've, I've, I've never, uh, you know, I've done uh, challenge matches, things like that, which you've got all. Not even close to the moving parts that a tournament, actual tournament, does. Uh, but I always, I always well, think that you so get humble. the money. Don't be so humble, Mark, because created a new niche and tool and pool again. Because after you started doing your challenge matches and tours, other people were doing the same thing now. And you know they say imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Yeah, that's that's what they what they say. I guess. Uh, uh, I, I should have held on a little bit, uh, got a little bit bigger. But yeah, but so I see. I always try and get the money first. And yeah, well, I, you've, got to, you've got to you've got to have confidence that the money is going to be there. Otherwise, don't even start. Right. And uh, so you get your so for you you get your location and your date and then you look to find uh, the money. And well, I've what, got, I know I know that that I have some backing in the beginning, and what I look for is additional sponsorship. Right. Because that additional sponsorship usually spells the difference between making or losing money. Right. And what do you, in your opinion, what, what do you think is the most common problem that a tournament, a, pr- a promoter would have uh, with uh whether it's at the beginning, the end, or in the middle, what is the most common problem and the solution? Well, um, 
the biggest problem you have to watch out for in the pool industry is to protect your dates. And there's really no way to do it. There really isn't one governing body that can protect you all over the world. And if you're doing a major event, you don't want a conflicting event even close to your event. So the best way you can protect your dates is to announce your tournament far in advance, like six months in advance, and then in all likelihood, other promoters will not step on your dates, but that's not always true. Right. Uh, have you ever had a problem with, with that? I guess the, the problem with protecting those dates is you may have a great tournament, a 20,000, 25,000 added event, but all it takes is somebody to come with a 50,000 added event at the same time, and you know where everybody's going. It's happened. It happens, it happens more today because events keep springing up in China because, as you know, pool has become popular in China, and what most of us promoters are aware of is the Chinese associations. They don't respect anybody else's dates. They do events when it works for them. Right. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know if there's any way to. Is, is there a way to control? I don't think there is a way to control, is there? No, there isn't. So we just kind of uh, stuck with it. Um, what, in your opinion, what makes a tournament successful? What makes the fans leave or the players leave or pay-per-view viewers leave walking away with feeling that they just had a fabulous experience? Good prize money and good players. That'll okay. do it. And you know, that what, today you're seeing a lot of tournaments that are special events. We started it with the... Uh, Fat Boy, and then the Bigfoot Tournament, which is 16 players only. And what promoters are discovering is if you have 16 top players, that's enough to get your audience. Yeah. I, well, I, you, we just had the uh, one there in Wisconsin. Um, yeah. right. Uh, the Quran Room. And yep. I've seen them before. And I, I kind of believe that maybe that is how a, a, maybe a pro tour can begin, is that's, by having 16 people and yeah, build on it from that. Yeah, that's the trend today. That's the trend today. High entry fees, select fields of players, and uh, hopefully put some added money in there. I'm working on an event right now that would be 16 players, excuse me, 32 players, a $1,000 entry fee, and twenty thousand added, so it's a fifty-two thousand dollar purse. We can pay twenty thousand for first place with thirty-two players, and still pay um, twelve to sixteen spots. Right. You see, that's and that's where I, my inexperience is I, figuring out the the payouts and what's fair. Because you know you've got some promoters. Well, I'll ask you this: What's your opinion on? Do you pay deeper in the tournament, or do you pay higher money up at the top? Well, and I think they, I think the trend in these 16-man tournaments is to typically only pay four out of 16 players, which I understand. Um, I'd probably go a little deeper than that, uh, although I wouldn't go deep with select fields because these guys are looking for big paydays. Um, with 16 players, I probably wouldn't pay more than six, the top six. With 32 players, players we probably pay 12. Now, if you have a low entry fee tournament, 
like a hundred, hundred fifty dollars, like the U.S. Bar Table Championship, where you're looking to get the largest number of players possible, you want to pay deep. If you have a hundred and twenty-eight man field, you want to pay at least forty-eight players. That's a different kind of tournament. Yeah, uh, like I guess if you put up your two thousand entry fee and uh, your expenses, which I know that it was kind of in this last one that just happened. Uh, a lot of everybody pretty much had backers, I think, for for that. Yeah, um, typically. If you pay two thousand entry and your expenses, you, you there's got to be a big prize money on the line to, that you can get. You know, yeah. you don't, nobody's wanting to break even. It's a, you know, if you cut yeah. your thirty five hundred to to play in it, you know, you think you'd want to be making at least ten. You but know, if it's a, but if it's a if it's a sixteen man field. And it costs you three thousand dollars with your expenses, and you have a chance to win twenty thousand. You don't have to beat a huge field of players, two or three hundred players. You got to win four or five matches. That's all. Right. And probably, and probably, if you win three matches on the winner's side, you will be in the money, and you'll make something. Um, what's, what do you think is uh, the one thing that can, other, other than the money? Take the money, the non-payouts, and you know, yeah. been through that. Other than that, what, what what's a, a problem that can absolutely just ruin a, an event, a tournament? Well, um, you've got to have a format that works for the players. You don't want guys putting up a thousand dollar entry fee and playing races to seven or races to nine, as you noticed at Derby City uh, last year. Not this year, but last year. They they um, extended the races in the nine ball from race to seven to race to nine just to make it little better matches. Um, players had constantly been complaining about the short matches. Um, you've got to give players a chance to play, and that's why double elimination works for the most part. You don't want right. guys to fly in and play one match and be eliminated. No, of course no. They've got to have a chance. Uh... I, I talked to uh, Nick Varner uh, one time, and he said, you know, the world titles and the things that I've got, my credentials, if it weren't for double elimination, I'm not sure where I would be. Exactly. Now, as you know, the Bigfoot tournament, which I co-produced with Greg Sullivan, we have 16 players play long matches, but it's single elimination. The reason that event works is because they're at Derby City where they have at least three to four other events they can play in. So this is only one of many events there. They're not coming just for that tournament. Right, yeah. And that's obviously that's what makes... If you, if you can piggyback, I guess, on something um, that's going to cut your your cost down, I, I imagine that's... I mean, Mark Griffin does it, does it with, uh, with all his events. It's always on the back of the amateur events. Yeah, uh, that has something else going on, I guess, uh, at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, this is just out of interest more than anything else. As a tournament director, uh, obviously a well-respected tournament director, the, what, what's the toughest call you've ever had to make? Toughest call? Yeah. Probably a couple times I had to forfeit top-name players there was already an audience in place waiting for them. They were late for their match, and uh, they got forfeited. It's happened. I can think of two times where 
players that were in the top ten were a couple minutes late. They got forfeited, and then they came running in the room, and they wanted to talk to their opponent. They wanted to see what they could do. And I said, no, we're not going to talk to your opponent. You had a 15-minute forfeit time, and now it's 20 minutes. I said, that match is over. And that puts you in a very uncomfortable situation because most of the people in the audience want me to make a match happen, but it's not going to happen. So those are the worst situations. And he also, I guess, takes the opponent that was there on time, I guess it takes them off the hook as well to not look like they're going, no, no, get rid of him, get rid of him, you know, it's forfeit. Yeah, well, I had to learn the hard way, Mark, because years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I would try to get both players aside and I'd talk to to the opponent and say, hey, will you play the match anyway? And I've come to realize you're putting that guy on the spot. And it's really the tournament director's call and not the other player's call. So when that happens when that happens now, it's a forfeit. And there's just nothing to talk about after that. Right. Yeah, I think uh, this uh, this to be a – that, and that's why you're a good tournament director. You know, if you get somebody – and, and he probably, I, I guess it maybe doesn't happen too much on the lower end of things. Um but on the lower end of things, maybe the tournament director is doing just that, going, well, what do you think? Oh, I don't know what to do. You know, now the guy's going to look like an asshole if he says, you know, yeah, forfeit him. And if he says, no, don't forfeit him, well, you know, now he's got a chance of losing losing the match. So, Listen, if you're going to be a good tournament director, Mark, you got to be fair with everybody, and you can't show bias towards the, the name players. Right. As far as I'm concerned, if I'm running a tournament like, say, the U.S. Open, everybody is equal in that field. And even though there are some guys in the tournament who are friends of mine, guys like Shane and Dennis Arculio and and Warren Kiamko, they stay at my house. They're my friends. But as they all know, I'll make a call against them just like anybody else. And and that's good. And it's good that they respect and know that. Because that can be a, a, a difficult thing, but as long as the standards there, you said the president that I know you stay in my house, and we're probably going to be eating some spaghetti tonight together. Uh, <laughs> I've got, got to do my job, you know. That's right. So, they know uh, that, and they res- I think they respect me for it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, they, they, they've got to. I, I think I, they probably don't feel so great if you're calling against them at that particular moment. But once they uh, cool down, they probably feel it. I had uh, a very uncomfortable situation at the U.S. Open last year in an important match on the final day with uh, Dennis Arculio and, and Mike Deshane. And Dennis is a, is a close friend of mine, and he was complaining about Mike's racking, and they called me over, and. I watched Mike rack the balls, and the rack was good. And I said, and Dennis said, no, no, I want you to rack the balls, talking to me. And I said, Dennis, I'm not going to rack the balls. I said, you got to break the balls. And I walked away. And Dennis was not, unha- was not happy, but he broke the balls, and he went ahead and he won the match. I think, if anything, it fired him up a little bit. Yeah, it could have. Uh, so are you going to be doing the token of the U.S. Open? Are you scheduled? Are you going to be doing the U.S. Open again this year? Yeah, I plan to. Okay. I know there's been some changes there with uh, uh, Pat Flyman and that kind of thing. So 
Well, I think that was necessary. Yeah, something something had to go down. Um, yeah. It seems like it was, it's always wooed to you've gone and you've done the best job you could. But, you know, and, uh, you know, when all those things went down, is I don't know. I, I don't know if you took any heat from it or not, but, uh, you know, you're there as a tournament director. You're not, you're not a banker. Yeah, I've taken yeah. heat from it a lot of times. People call me when they get a bad check and say, Jay, help me out. And I became very uncomfortable with that. And I, I told Barry, I said, e- either we do something different this year or, or I won't be back. And uh, he did do something different. He made a he made a good arrangement with Pat Fleming. I talked to Pat and verified all that. And Pat asked me, he said, Jay, I'd like you to come back. He said, I know the event will be run well. And I said, Pat, if you're handling the money, I'll come back. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, you and I, well, I, I say I, I don't know how I necessarily got involved in it, but we were involved in the one event. Um, here in Phoenix with, yeah, um, yeah. what was his name, Bobby? Chuck Bobbitt. Chuck Bobbitt, that's it, yeah. yeah. And, uh, that, that was, uh, that was a crazy thing because, you know, you're talking about, uh, what you said earlier about venue. And that's the important, uh, the important thing. I wanted to do a tournament. I've never done one before, but I wanted to do one here in Phoenix, a world class one. And I felt like I had a lot of things in place and a lot of things to offer. The one thing I didn't have was the right venue to do it and at the, at the hotel because they wanted X amount of room nights or I had to pay a ridiculous amount of money for the space and those kind of I would things. Recommend to you, I would recommend to you to go to one of the Indian casinos there. Yeah, well, I, this was this was back then, what, 10 years yeah. ago? And, yeah. And that was always my problem. And he said... Oh, I've got the shirt. They're great. No, but I asked him for all those things. I said, well, good luck oh, to you, yeah. man. You go for it. Then I got a call saying, the day before, saying, oh, God, they will let the tables in. I'm screwed. They won $40,000. And uh, we saw how that worked out. So. And uh, so you, you you will be doing the Moscone Cup again this year, though? Um, Yeah, I'll probably be doing commentary on that one. Good. All right, well, I, I think that is just about it. Okay. Um, I I appreciate your uh, insight and your input. You know, we've got a couple other people going to be uh, coming on who are respected in the industry, and I, I'm sure that there will be different opinions on one thing or another. What do you think of Calcutta's in professional events? Well, I think there's a place for them, but it probably resides in pool room tournaments and not in – hotel tournaments um there's there's always questions of legal issues and right. uh you know if there's any if there's any legal legal ramifications i say you don't have it if there's any question at all if you're in a state where no one's going to you know bother you then why not what it, what a calcutta does is it it gets more of the more of the audience and spectators intimately involved with the event right so it's a, it's a good thing, but you know, fake sake, there there are legal issues that go alongside it. Some in some places, but well, listen, Jake, thank you for your time and uh, appreciate it. And uh, you have a safe trip to the Philippines and have a good time and uh, bring me something nice back. You got it, Mark. Nice talking to you, man. You too. Thanks, buddy. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Bye bye.
Well, there you go. There's some more input and information from a uh, another one of the uh, people who each provide tournaments for you know 30 years. Uh, and now he's you know the most recent being the Bigfoot uh, there at uh, the Derby City Classic. And so that that's how you go about uh, running a tournament or getting things ready to run a tournament. It's uh, I, I tell you what, it's a thankless job. And it's got a lot of moving parts that can go wrong, I think. And uh, so when we complain, if we're at a tournament and we complain about one thing or another, you know, the, the, the rules are there most of the time for a reason. And there's, I don't think the promoters necessarily go out and try to make things difficult. I think sometimes it just happens. But... You know, I, I guess there's a there's a way to get it right, and there's a way to uh, prepare for anything that could go wrong. Uh, so, well, that's it. That's Mark Cantrell. This is Legend Champions Report, brought to you by Niels Garage Cabot of Mesa, Arizona. Thank you all for listening, and uh, thanks to Jay Helfer for joining me. I will speak to you all next week. Hello, this is Ricky Bryant with American Billiard Radio. On special report tonight, we're going to be talking with Skylar Woodard, who just took down the big tournament in Beloit, Wisconsin, at the Carom Room. How you doing tonight, Sky? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, sir. Uh, you made it back home, I see, from uh, from the big tournament. Uh, that was uh, quite an impressive win you had this weekend. Uh, probably, is that, I would say, probably the biggest win you've had in your career so far? Yeah, probably probably that one and the uh, Papa Bluff tournament, the Smoking Aces. Okay. One that they had uh, last year. Yeah, and I understand from talking with some people, I haven't... Uh, checked it to be for sure, but my understanding with a 16-man field with the uh, $2,000 entry per man and the 4000 that was added by by uh, the Carom Room, and then the Calcutta, that that was the largest payout for bar box and a 16-man field uh, that, that uh, we've seen, because it... Uh, I think the Calcutta came in at about forty, forty-two or forty-four thousand, and then you had the uh, the thirty-six thousand uh, from the entries and the added money. So it was a, a pretty sweet payday for you. A little over thirty-six thousand, is my understanding. Um, you worked your way through the field. Your first opponent that you had to come up against. Uh, was definitely no pushover by on paper, but uh, you played uh, Orcola, and he was yeah. just coming off of the win at uh, Super Billiards, and you seem to have really ran over him pretty much. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on on what it felt like playing playing Dennis? Um, I just I just went in. 
tried to play my best and, and break the, the best I could because I played him a couple weeks before from eight ball and, and he drowned to me about about like uh, the score of our match. So I was just uh, I was just hoping uh, I was trying to keep him away from the table as much as possible and stay in control. Well, you know, I didn't see a in the matches that I watched. I didn't see a whole lot of safety play with anybody. I saw a lot of uh, offense. And uh, watching your break, your break was working phenomenal. Uh, for the matches that I got to see, it was uh, you know this was eight ball on the bar box on diamond tables, and they weren't easy tables. Uh, and uh, race to 15 is not a short race, but uh, there were, you know, the matches I got to watch, you uh, did a lot of break and runs. And it seemed like you were, I don't have percentages, but it, I would say probably 80% of the breaks, you were making the second ball in the rack in the side pocket. And it seemed just almost consistent. Is that something you've been practicing? Um, no, I mean I, I don't. I mean all I play is eight ball when I'm at home because that's what that's what everybody plays. So that's I just figured out like like a good break to make the make those balls in the shot majority of the time. Uh, that's it, but if they don't work, I just you just gotta, I just got to figure it out and move the cue ball around until figure out where the balls are going. Well, like I said, you took Orcola in the first match, and uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Who'd you have in your second match out out there? Uh, I had uh, Jesse Bowman. Jesse. And uh, exactly who did you come up against that, that put you in the one-loss bracket? Because this was a double elimination. Uh, Corey Duell. Corey? Yeah. And... Uh, Corey, we heard a lot about Corey this weekend with his break, but I, I think yours is probably more uh, dynamic from what I got to see. Corey was grinding it out with uh, uh, with with some odd breaks, but of course we all know that Corey is uh, a mastermind of figuring out the break. Um, would you have any thoughts about when you had to play Corey that? Uh, any problems with his break or his offense, or what was your main thoughts? Um, not, not really any thoughts. Just uh, like same as all the other ones. I just tried to do the best I could do because I just went to that tournament and trying to play the best I could since I ain't, I ain't won nothing in a long in a while. I just uh, I, I guess I've been in a slump or something. I just I knew the best I could. Well, and then uh, when Corey put you over into the one loss side, on that was on Saturday night, and then that set up the uh, hot seat match between uh, Corey and Shane for Sunday morning, and you were uh, set up to play Darren Appleton. That would have been the final four, and then. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever you want to look at it, uh, Darren overslept Sunday morning. Even though the uh, tournament uh, people were trying to contact him, I know a number of us sent messages out the best we could to try and 
find out where he was at, trying to get him to the tournament. And uh, I know that that you took a little bit of heat about it, which I don't think was really fair, but because uh, it was almost 20 after start time when they finally located him, and he would head overslept, and it happens. And uh, I think he manned up on online about that it happens. So uh, it was unfortunate on his part that that gave you the the hot seat from the one loss side, waiting to see if you were going to play Corey or Shane. Do you have any uh, preferences coming out of that, or you just were ready for whichever one you could get? Um, I was just ready for whichever one. Uh, I really, really didn't care. I felt real confident going into the, the last day. Well, I know, know you were there... Uh, an hour before start time, warming up and ready to play. Uh, the tables were selected. They were making a determination of which match was going to be on the main table. They were actually setting up a second camera so that they could have both tables uh, with some some coverage. And uh, everything was being covered and broadcast by Big Truck, which did a he did a fantastic job as always out there with the camera room. The uh, match between Corey and Shane was was a well played match it came down to uh, Shane winning out and having the hot seat this was a true double elimination tournament which meant that uh, uh, the winner coming from the one loss bracket would have to defeat Shane twice and you had Corey in the in the one loss bracket and uh, what was your feelings on uh, Having to see him again after he'd put you there. You... Um, I just the first time we played, I just I had something uh, had, had something to come up that kind of kind of messed me up in the middle of the match. And the second match, I was just the second time we played, I was just uh, focusing on on trying to make sure uh, I got to the finals. I got a. Uh, Well, I have to say, I think that that you play, you played very loose up there. You didn't seem to be under pressure at any time that I could tell. Uh, but I, but I've seen you that way since I've been doing coverage and and watching you play since you were a teenager. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen you get down on yourself or down and out about how you're playing. Uh, and I think that's that is big in the mental game, and that's really big. Uh, in the level that you're playing. Uh, yeah, I just try not to let anything bother me. Just because I see a lot of people when they get mad, it just gets worse. I just have to stay as positive as I can. Well, I was real impressed with that. And after uh, after you defeated uh, Corey, we had the finals and we had the first match with Shane. And you jumped out to an early lead. And it looked like you were going to run away with it. And then he started his break. Just to be honest, you know, Shane's known for his break, and uh, his break wasn't working in that first first match. And uh, it seemed like it picked up a little bit. And he was clawing his way back in, and uh, it seemed like you picked up a gear and finally shut it down in the first. First match. 
Uh, any thoughts on on that when you saw him gaining games back on you? Um, yeah, when when I was up, I had a pretty good lead, and then I broke I broke dry, I think, and then he started he got his brake working. I just I knew I was in trouble, but I was just hoping and praying I got one more chance. If I got one more chance, then I couldn't be upset with myself. Well, that's that, and that's exactly it. looked looked like to me that uh, he had it going, and uh, that he gave up the table, and and uh, you closed it out. Uh, I know the between the two of you that uh, I think they had the match set up for much later for the second match, but y'all agreed after that one to just take a fifteen minute break. Um, and I know you left the the table and, and were kind of hanging out with your friends and, and talking and chatting and, and staying loose. Uh, Shane went back to the table and was working on his brake because his brake wouldn't work. And I talked to him, and he told me he thought he had it figured out what was wrong and had it fixed. Uh, coming back to the second match, as in the first one, you won the lag and had the brake. Um uh, What was your feelings with with that? And going into that first rack, it looked like you were ready to take off again, and then kind of stumbled a little bit. Yeah, um, I won the break, and I was just saying to myself, just try to try to take control and, and take off the first few racks for sure, and get a get a pretty good lead, and then and just try to stay in control. Um, but I messed up like the first. First, uh, messed up like two or three times in the first like six racks, and it, uh, I thought it was really going to cost me, but I ended up getting forced it and broke dry a couple times, and I got control. I know it was it was back and forth there early on in that last last set, and you uh, you finally see how many did you run out there at the end? Was it four? Um. I know I was down like five to one, and then I was up seven six and down eight seven, and then I got up I got up twelve eight from there. And I uh, and then he won he won two games and I I ran out off his break and then broke in the last two to yeah. win. Well, I know that uh, Shane was just shaking his head watching you break, so you had him. Yeah, you had him going there, and, and he was he was playing good. Uh, just his brake wasn't working as well, wasn't working consistently. And your brake, I, I don't think I saw you scratch more than twice in the two sets that, that, that I watched between y'all. Um, the rest of the time you had a few dry brakes, but you had fewer dry brakes and fewer scratches than Shane. And so from that standpoint, I think it gave you the advantage. Um, now, when you going into that last rack, what was your what was your thinking after you broke? Uh, I know he was just chomping at the bits, wanting to get back to the table. You could see it, and uh, there's not much a player can do when the, when the other player keeps him sitting and watching. But. Uh, what what were your thoughts when you broke that last rack? Oh, um, just 
just uh, take a take a drink of water and take a deep breath and just uh, just get out. Because this is uh, this is not the first uh, first time that you've uh, exhibited great break and run out in eight ball. Uh, was it two years ago that you were playing in the bar table eight ball championship and uh, played against Darren? Oh yeah, and I was a bar table championship. Yeah, not this year, but last year. Yep, and the uh, the match basically came down to who won the lag because it was alternating breaks instead of winter breaks like this tournament. And uh, if I remember correctly, in that match against Darren, uh, the two of you broke and ran every rack. Yeah, he won the lag and. He broke around all five of his, and I broke around all four of mine. That was, uh, and I think that was one of the things that a lot of people were really looking forward to getting to see the two of y'all face off again. But, like I said, it's unfortunate uh, uh, that he overslept and uh, missed his missed his start time. Um, but I'm sure we'll see the, see the two of y'all match up uh, again at some point in the future. What? Uh, What's your next big tournament you're going to be going to? Um, the next one that I know about as of right now is uh, the Big Time Classic in Houston uh, at the end of May. Is that uh, what uh, format? Is that is it ten ball, eight ball, nine ball? Um, they got a, a banks tournament on the big table, and then they got a one pocket tournament, and they got a. Uh, Nine ball on the bar table tournament. Wow. I actually won this tournament last year. Okay. Well, out of out of all those games, banks, one pocket, nine ball, ten ball, eight ball. What is your favorite game, and your and what you feel like is your strongest game? Um, I feel like uh, eight ball is probably my favorite in my in my best game, probably. Of course, they always say that that you, that you grew up in bank country uh, in Kentucky, and that uh, right. Kentucky area is known for the for the players that play banks. And I think it between there and Chicago is probably two areas that are big in one pocket. I've seen you play some pretty strong one pocket as well. So uh, I think you've got a big future in front of you. Uh, this tournament you were playing with uh, a Divinity Q, and uh, I understand that that you're making a change in uh, sponsors. Uh, you're going from Divinity to uh, to Muchi now, and we'll be from here on out. We'll be playing playing with Muchi Q, uh, and possibly there's a a Skylar. Line of cues coming out from there as well. Correct. Uh, are you? Have you looked at the design, or are they designing it and uh, putting your name on it, or are you going to work on on helping with the design or anything in that area? Yeah, I'm. I've got to. Uh, I've got to go down there soon to the Gucci factory and, and design a few cues. And then uh, they'll work on them, and the line will be out. And you started practicing with uh, 
with the new queue, or are they working on building it for you now? What's uh, what's the status on that? Um, I actually already got it. I've uh, just started practicing with it when I got back from uh, Beloit. I just played with it a, a few times before then, but I mainly played with my Divinity since I, I knew I had that. I had three big tournaments in a row those three weeks, last three weekends, so I played with my Divinity majority of the time. Well, like I said, it's always been a pleasure watching you play. Have you got anybody else that uh, that you want to thank or any other sponsors that you want to mention? Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my sponsors and, and all my family and friends that support me and, and everything I do. Well, it's been, been a pleasure having you on the show tonight, and uh, good luck, and I'm sure we're going to see you in the... Uh, in the winter circle and a lot of uh, tournaments in the future. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yep. This is Ricky Bryant with American Billiard Radio. Oh, I started out believing the universe was space That all the solid objects were founded in full grace I started out believing Earthworms could not crawl, that music plays, a donkey brays, dogs have days, horse has nays, and everyone has a ball. But it's duct all gooey, gooey, stringy, chewy, mushy kind of ball. Rap, flap, tap, sap, constantly moving.